2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. A historic day at the Supreme Court. Can Colorado kick Trump off the ballot? A look at the arguments with political commentator John Avalon. Then...
3: What the scientists are telling us is that uh, things are gonna get a lot worse and cause great havoc, but there's great hope.
2: Former Vice President Al Gore joins me with a frank look at the climate crisis and...
4: There's not really anything radical about it except for the casting and the storytelling.
2: Welcome to Kim's Convenience. I speak to the creator of the award-winning comedy drama that inspired the Netflix hit.
5: Plus... Look at the walls over there. Now I'm starting to get very excited.
2: World-famous climber Alex Honnold talks to Hari Sreenivasan about tackling the untouched corners of the Arctic. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Wanpoor in London. Not since Bush v. Gore in 2000 has the Supreme Court had before it such a monumental election-related case. Today, the justices heard arguments on this key question. Can Colorado kick Trump off the ballot for his role in the January 6th insurrection as the state Supreme Court has already ruled? The answer has the potential to totally upend the 2024 election. Take a listen to this exchange between Trump's lawyer Jonathan Mitchell and Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson.
6: What we said in our opening brief was President Trump did not engage in any act that can plausibly be characterized as insurrection. All right, so why would this not be an
1: insurrection? What is your argument that it's not? Your reply brief says that it wasn't because, I think you say, um, it did not involve an organized attempt to overthrow the government. So that's
6: one of many reasons. But for an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. And this so the point that occurred, is that a
1: chaotic effort to overthrow the government? is not an insurrection? No,
6: we didn't concede that it's an effort to overthrow the government either, Justice Jackson.
2: So here to discuss is political analyst John Avalon. Welcome back to the program, John. Um, Thank you. you must have been watching all the hearing. It is now adjourned. It's over. There's some talk that it appeared the justices were skeptical of Colorado's case. How did you read it?
7: Well, look, certainly in listening to the over two hours you heard a persistent strain of skepticism, Um, I think justice is looking for an off ramp. This is obviously an issue that does deserve a hearing in the Supreme Court. Um, And and I think what needs to be separated is the politics of this, some of which are partisan, the the, the practicality uh, of what's being done by uh, Colorado, uh, and then the intent of the language that's written in the U.S. Constitution, uh, 14th Amendment, Section 3. All those things are intention. tension, frankly. Um, I think from a practical standpoint, especially the question of whether one state can block a president, a person from appearing on the ballot, um, that gets very dicey because you have you know, you're at 50 different standards, uh, potentially 50 different states. So this needs to be federalized and that's why it's in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, Politically, we'll see how it breaks down. Clearly, Chief Justice Roberts would like to have some degree of bipartisanship. Uh, I would suggest, though, having studied this intensely, partly as a result of my book on Lincoln and the post-Civil War period, uh, that the language in the Constitution is clear. Its implementation is vague, and we only have that precedent. But uh, to argue that this was not supposed to be prospective, it was only supposed to be retrospective uh, to the Civil War, does not fit the clear intent and statements around the ratification debate about this amendment.
2: You, you say that. But also. Let me just interrupt you. You say that, but there is no word president in Section 3. And that's what his lawyers and his side are hanging on to.
7: That's right. Um, however, if you go back and look at the ratification debates around this specific amendment, one senator said to another, why is the president's name not enumerated? And the other senator replied, in real time, the president is included because he is an officer of the United States. So that seems to me to be a particularly thin reed to hang an argument on if you actually take the the trouble of looking at the debates and the understanding of its time, which is allegedly what originalists and textualists would do. Uh, That that argument doesn't. Hold water, it seems to be, based on the conversations around the original ratification of this amendment.
2: It's really interesting because, you know, his side said the president is not an officer of the United States, and yet that language is in Section 3, and his own lawyer, Trump's lawyer, also argued that what happened was not an insurrection on January 6th. Here's a little bit of the exchange. Let's just listen.
6: President Trump did not engage in any act that can plausibly be characterized as insurrection. All right, so why would not this not be an
1: insurrection? What is your argument that it's not? Your reply brief says that it wasn't because, I think you say, um, it did not involve an organized attempt to overthrow the government. So
6: That's one of many reasons. But for an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. And this... And so why the it point is
2: So we're going to dump out of that because actually we did play it uh, a little bit earlier in the introduction. But so they're saying it's not an insurrection and the president wasn't um, involved. There are others who say that look at the entire language around Section 3. It doesn't just Mm -hmm. say, you know, conducted it, but there's a whole second part of that, you know, aided and abetted, didn't stop, et cetera.
7: That's the key point. Right. You, you may argue that Donald Trump did not engage in an insurrection. He did not march on the Capitol on January 6th with the violent mob of his supporters. But the language, as you point out, in the 14th Amendment, Section 3 says, give aid or comfort to insurrection or rebellion, aid or comfort to. Now, the, the criminal statute for sedition includes incitement of an insurrection. Uh, which was actually part of the language of his second impeachment, which passed majorities in both the House and the Senate, though he was not convicted in the Senate. Um, but I find particularly um, troubling and, and, and slightly absurd the argument that this uh, does not apply. Overthrowing the governor of the United States by violence. OK, so a violent mob was deployed to the Capitol with some degree of coordination among his supporters and various groups designed to not just obstruct an official proceeding, but to stop the official certification of the ballots after an election. An overthrow of the government is not simply an a, an organized army uh, marching on the White House. Uh, overthrowing our system of government involves stopping the processing of a fair and free election according to constitutional processes. And it's very clear that that's what Donald Trump and his aides engaged in. Mm-hmm. They tried to overthrow an election in our democracy that contradicts and cuts to the core of our core of our constitutional republic. So uh, let's not get too cute uh, about, about what, what these words mean. Um, if you try to overthrow our system of government, you're trying
2: to overthrow the government. And obviously there was a death, there were injuries, and the president and his uh, MAGA still deny the result of that election. So that, that is also right. a fact over the last you know, f- uh, several years since that uh, election. But let's not get too cute, you say, So I want to ask you why it sounds like there's a lot of cute going on, a lot of semantic discussion, uh, a lot of trying to thread a needle, as you said, try to reach some kind of bipartisan deal, look for an off-ramp. I wonder what you make of uh, Hillary Clinton. I mean, she was famously, you know, faced off against him, and she had things to say on MSNBC last night. Take a listen. They could come up with some out for Trump, but if they want to be true Mm -hmm. to their so-called originalist interpretation, then I think they have to find that Section 3 applies to people who foment and participate in insurrections, but the remedy lies in the states, which would be kind of a a fair way of kind of parsing this. What do you think?
7: Look, I, I think she's absolutely right about the, the, the originalist and textualist, uh, statement. You know, you can't take the Constitution a la carte. The Constitution says what it says. The Constitution applies to everyone, every state, every individual. Uh, and that's why from, you know, I began to argue or, or point out that 14th Amendment Section 3 could apply in the spring of 2021 on air at CNN in my reality check segments. Um, you can't ignore that this states, even if it's inconvenient politically or, or practically, uh, to do so. Now, what, what they could say with credibility, and this is part of perhaps the attempt to find common ground to depoliticize the court, is say, well, he hasn't been officially charged with or convicted in insurrection, mm-hmm. right? He's been charged with conspiracy to defraud the United States by Jack Smith, uh, and that's part of undermining faith and confidence in our system of government, our democracy, uh, which is a serious thing. But he was not charged with insurrection fine maybe maybe that's your argument maybe your argument and I this is a credible one because Abraham Lincoln himself in 1860 didn't appear on the ballots in the deep south I think if you have a national election and states pulling people for various uh, reasons uh, that that's a tricky slippery slope however, the Constitution says what it says. And the Constitution says that if you've engaged in or aided or abetted an insurrection or rebellion, that's a disqualification as real as age or or country of birth. And I'll say this this shouldn't be partisan. Mm-hmm. You know, Conservative Judge Michael Ludig, uh, two Federalist Society legal scholars took a deep, deep look at this without any preconceived notion and said this is self-executing, it does apply, it says what it, it says, and, and therefore if you're going to be true to the Constitution you need to apply this. If you try to kick the can and say, well, you know, let, let's wait till after the uh, court cases or, or whether the, the question of insurrection is adjudicated, if he is reelected president uh, while losing the popular vote, possibly, uh, that, then, then it would seem that we're, we're back in that category of, of, uh, of, of OLC legal opinions where, you know, once he takes the oath, he's president. I, I just say that there is a sometimes a reluctance to hold Donald Trump accountable because he keeps pressing forward, because he effectively threatens our institutions and say, if you hold me accountable, my supporters will be, will, will start, you know, rioting and protesting and, and it'll be destructive and destabilizing to society, which effectively was the argument that they were using through January 6th, the actions that were taken on January 6th, and then attempts to wriggle out of accountability for January 6th. Uh, so you know, once we, that's a very dangerous game to start playing. Yeah, a lot look, of the law, read the constitution as it's written.
2: We've got very little time, but, but, but one analyst in the times has written, whatever the uh, comes out of the Supreme Court, shouldn't both major parties insist on presidential candidates for whom such questions are not even remotely an issue? <laughs> yes, they should. In short. Uh, it, it should say if you've, been, if you've been indicted
7: on a felony or convicted of a felony, you probably shouldn't be able to, to run for president, considering that felons All can't right. vote in many places. Uh, right. But we got to, you know, our, our, this outpaces our laws, even though it's written in the Constitution. Apply the laws, apply history, guide, be guided by the Constitution to defend a democratic republic.
2: John Avalon, always good to have you on this program.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life
1: wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And now, some major climate news today. The world has been temporarily pushed over the critical 1.5 degrees centigrade mark, thanks to 2023 being the hottest year on record. In 2024, climate news looks ever bleaker, and tackling the crisis is too often pushed down the agenda by wars and political fights. But there are some green shoots of hope emerging, a clean industrial revolution, as Bill Weir now reports.
8: These days, it can feel as if some part of the planet is always burning, or flooding, or both in succession. But less obvious is the clean industrial revolution cranking up around the world, driven as much by profits as politics. Oh my goodness. Wind and sun energy is now so cheap, the deep red state of Texas creates more renewable energy than California. And with hundreds of billions of investment dollars pouring into clean tech, startups like Antora hope revolutionary thermal batteries like this will power entire factories and move entire industries to the sun and wind belts.
0: 1600 degrees Celsius. So this is hotter than the melting point of steel and it's just a couple feet inside that shell.
8: I have a hard time explaining to my kids what nuclear fusion is. <laughs> But this is just a hot rock in a box. (laughs) Exactly. In speed and scale, China is leading the transition at a staggering pace, spending almost as much in clean energy last year as the entire world invested in fossil fuels. But science says it's not enough just to add clean energy, it must replace the dirty old kind. And since methane has over 80 times the planet cooking power of carbon dioxide in the near term, President Joe Biden halted the expansion of massive liquefied natural gas terminals in Louisiana until the climate costs can be better understood, setting up a stark re-election rematch with the man one expert calls a climate arsonist. Their windmills are causing whales to die in numbers never seen before. Nobody does anything about that. But the laws of physics do not pause for elections. And the state of Maine is among those places already reeling with the changes. So this is is, all, was what that was? Yeah, there?
4: the whole building.
8: No way, this is, that's what's yeah. left of
4: it. Just generations and generations of stuff. And yeah. you know, there's, there's a lot of memory down there.
8: Two freakish January storms devastated the iconic lobster and fishing communities already suffering effects of warmer seas. But Maine is also leaning into adaptation and mitigation with gusto. According to the nonprofit rewiring America, Mainers are replacing old furnaces with more efficient heat pumps at a rate three times faster than the U.S. average. Their climate action plan is among the most robust in the nation. So we're keeping eyes on places like this to see how people are adjusting
2: to this new abnormal. Bill Weir reporting there. Now, my next guest is the former Vice President Al Gore, who had his own tangle with the Supreme Court as it awarded the 2000 election to George W. Bush. Former Vice President Al Gore was one of the first public figures to rally and sound the alarm bells on climate change with his Oscar winning film An Inconvenient Truth out nearly 20 years ago. In this interview before today's trump court case i ask Gore how he assesses the grassroots solutions to the climate crisis
3: it's tricky to balance the dire warnings that the scientists have been trying to get us to listen to for a long time and of course you know the scientists turned out to be spot on uh, correct in what they warned about years ago and so we should pay more attention to the warnings they're issuing now if we do not sharply reduce The burning of fossil fuel, the the climate crisis is really a fossil fuel crisis, so that's 80% of it. Uh, And we have this mandate now to transition away from fossil fuels. If we do not do that quickly, what the scientists are telling us is that uh, things are going to get a lot worse and cause great havoc. But there's great hope, uh, and you have to balance the warnings with the fact that Mm -hmm. there is really good news. Uh, As Bill says, people are working on it, but... Here is some good news from the scientists as well. Once we reach true net zero and stop adding to the overburden of this heat trapping pollution that we're spewing into the sky every day, uh, then the temperatures will stop going up almost immediately with a lag of as little as three to five years. And if we stay at true net zero, then half of all the human-caused greenhouse gas pollution will come out of the atmosphere in as little as 25 to 30 years, and the long, slow healing process can begin. Uh, The challenge, of course, is to stop using fossil fuels as quickly as possible. But there again, there's really good news with the solar and wind and batteries and electric vehicles, and green hydrogen is coming on now uh, online, and Uh, regenerative agriculture, which is one of the real keys, and uh, sustainable forestry and circular manufacturing. The list is a long one. But investors and business leaders, uh, particularly in the consumer-facing companies, where their customers are demanding it, and by the way, the employees in these companies and the families of the executives and some of the executives themselves, are saying, look, we gotta be a part of the solution instead of making the problem continually worse.
2: And you're also a politician. Do you agree that uh, this will be top of mind for voters, certainly young voters in the United States and uh, around the rest of the world?
3: Well, I think there is a big generation gap on it and young voters, and by the way, in the US, young voters in both political parties and large majorities are demanding action on this. But as you know, Christiane, the, the politics of climate have for decades been very challenging because it is by nature a global uh, a challenge and we're not always used to dealing with that kind of uh, crisis. Uh, it plays out over time periods that are a little bit longer than election cycles and the next uh, yeah. polling uh, results. Uh, and as a, re- as a result, it has been a challenge for both political parties. The Republican Party used to be part of the group uh, searching for solutions, but that is a po- we've now got a polarized situation in the U.S., which is tragic and unnecessary. But I'm hoping that the young people you referred to, particularly the young Republicans, are beginning to, to heal that uh, polarizing divide.
2: So I just want to ask you, you know, James Hansen, the the NASA expert, who was one of the the first on climate warnings, has warned that, you know, unless there's some massively radical thing to to happen very soon, the magic 1.5 degrees number will, you know, will be surpassed. And there seems to be a struggle over the experts over that. Where do you come down on that?
3: Well, I have the deepest respect for Jim Hansen uh, and also for his colleagues who have a slightly different view, but they agree on most things. Uh, You know, half of the calendar days in 2023 were actually above 1.5. And in November, there were two days above uh, a a two degree margin above the pre-industrial temperature. So, uh, yes, we we're running out of time to, to solve this in time. But, and we're running some unacceptably high risks with large global uh, systems that uh, are important for the flourishing of humanity that are now being destabilized. Mm-hmm. So the sooner the better. Uh, the issue you're referring to uh, is over how sensitive the climate is to more and more greenhouse gas pollution. And uh, ultimately, uh, they agree mm-hmm. on far more than they disagree. They're all saying the same thing. We got to switch away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible and stop using the sky as an open sewer. That's the basic problem. We're putting 162 million tons up there every day. uh, And the accumulated amount, it stays on average each molecule for about 100 years. And the accumulated amount today, Christiane, is trapping as much extra heat as would be released by 750,000 Hiroshima class uh, Oppenheimer era atomic bombs exploding on the earth every single day. Uh, That's insane for us to allow that to continue, particularly when we have the alternatives available now that are cheaper, cleaner, create three times as many jobs per dollar invested. All we have to do really is to overcome the political power and influence of the uh, fossil fuel companies, which have you you know, been trying to persuade people that this this is not such a big deal and they're they're trying to extend their business plan and the petro states put up a lot of resistance in the international negotiations. We are getting there uh, and we will solve this. People should be of good good hope on this. But the question is, will we solve it in time? We have to speed up this process.
2: Vice President Al Gore, thank you so much indeed for joining us.
3: Thank you, Christiane.
2: And from the drama of this climate crisis, we turn next to theatre, where a Technicolor Toronto corner shop has landed on stage here in London. And it's not just any store, it's Kim's Convenience, performing sellout shows, the Korean-Canadian play that inspired the hit sitcom Returns, with playwright Inns Choi, who called it a love letter to first-generation immigrants in Canada taking the lead role of the father figure, Mr. Kim. I sat down with him and cast members, Jennifer Kim and Miles Mitchell, on their set this week to discuss why this slice of life comedy resonates across cultures. Inz Choi, Jennifer Miles, welcome to the program. I start with you, obviously, you're the creator of this, uh, of this performance. Was there something about your own life? Is this your story? Um...
4: My dad was a pastor of a church in Toronto, a Korean immigrant church. So I didn't, my dad wasn't, didn't own a store, but my uncle did. And his, his store's name was Kim's Grocer. So that's kind of the inspiration for Kim's Convenience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you name a scene and it, I could draw a line to somewhere in my life or somebody in my life that it stems from.
2: So you did the play in, C- in Canada first on the fringe and yeah. you two are not Canadian. No. What did you guys know about this story or even about the Korean immigrant experience before you took on these roles? Janet, not Janet, Jennifer.
9: (laughs) You do a good job. Uh, I am Korean American. So I come from, so I was born in Korea and I moved to California with my parents. And so they've become sort of first-generation immigrants. And I sort of became a Janet for them because, because they had, you know, language barriers that they were working through as they were starting their business. And, you know, even if they wanted to make an appointment for hospital, you know, doctor's visit, like then they would have to go through me. And so I very much understand sort of that immigrant Korean life um, kind of firsthand. Um, The story is quite personal to me, actually. Yeah. My parents also had a small Family business that me and my brother were child laborers. <laughs> <laughs> <Free child laughs> <the university>. oh, <laughs> this is in the United States. Yes yes. yes, 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 yes.
2: Miles, what did you know about this experience? I mean, you're obviously, you know, I guess a long time immigrant family to the UK. Yeah. Where, is, where, where is your origin?
1: Yeah, my grandparents are from jamaica strangely there were a lot of parallels just with our immigrant experience of grandparents and like legacy and just raising your children in a new country really so um what might have appeared has been quite separate first over like the rehearsal process we started to join at the dots and i saw a lot more parallels so that was a great education for me
2: um in this was canada's first asia-led Cast and story mm-hmm. on its national CBC broadcaster. Yeah, this was a big deal It's actually quite radical and I don't know for instance You just talk you're talking to me with a perfectly Canadian accent, but mr.. And mrs. Kim speak with almost a Parodied mm-hmm. or an old-school Korean accent. There's not really anything
4: radical about it except for the casting and the storytelling. So um describe yeah it was the first i guess it was the first i didn't even think about it but i guess it was the first time a korean family was on stage with their parents Mm -hmm. and the parents were uh portrayed realistically like my parents like jen's parents not Miles' parents but (laughs) (laughs) but many asian parents many korean parents in toronto uh, across canada and the states and probably here too
2: do you think canada was more receptive to some of the, you know, fun, funny but edgy jokes that yeah. you made. For instance, in, in the, in the uh, Netflix series, the very first opening episode has a joke about a gay couple and the gay pride. There is a lot of humor, and some of the humor uh,
4: kind of walks that line of, um, in my opinion, it's being real. It's being real. I think there is a a tendency for like mainstream to see uh, a Korean family or an Asian family and want to imbue them with all wholesome, uh, good morals, you know, the minor, the, the model minority, the, you know, but from the inside, we're full of warts and faults uh, and there's a lot of racism within cultures, amongst Asians even. So in the play, I wanted to bring out, uh,
2: I wanted to tell a, a real story. Miles, let me ask you, I, I don't know whether there was a sharp intake of breath at any of the performances when one of your scenes, when mm. you're, you're playing a guy coming in, you know, bomber jacket, want to buy something. Mm. and mister Jean jacket. Jean jacket. That is crucial. Sorry. Okay, tell me why.
4: Because Mr. Kim has a theory. <laughs> and if you come to see the play, then you'll find out what the
2: theory is. <laughs> you're going to have to say it because I'm
0: going <laughs> to about it. But now. it's not a bomber jacket. Or <laughs> I'm it's not glad, that.
4: I am yeah. very glad you corrected me.
2: Miles, steal, no steal. Yeah. So basically, the grocery owner, nice guy, yeah. is basically saying to his daughter, Janet, who's helping in this store, look at that. Yeah. You know? Here comes, and he doesn't say black. She says, because, because yeah. he's black. And steal, no steal, he's asking her to judge whether yeah. your character is going to steal. That is edgy. Mm. Did you feel that?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the writing navigates a really warped and edgy logic in a really smart way. <laughs> and I just, just burst out laughing when I first read it. And I've had you know lots of friends and had a really diverse audience here at Park Theatre i have just found that scene is like the memorable highlight because of its like genius writing so, so um, that's really yeah. good
2: that that's then an, an advance because i don't know what it, how it would go down in new york for instance or
1: mm. i just yeah i know of the history of the play how it's kind of toward oh. canada in particular and mm-hmm. i know that there's a strong west indian like uh background in canada and it's diverse as well so it's gone through workshops so it's gone through a lot to get here as well so um i did go oh my gosh what is this but then i realized when we got to the end just exactly what it was
2: it, is, it has a really identifiable and and accessible story of a generation gap that is a that's universal isn't it i mean that really absolutely yeah when i first wrote it i knew that korean
4: second generation koreans like my sisters and my cousins would love it because you know i'm kind of like making fun of Apa and like you know a little bit and then and i love. knew the parents would love it and i knew that asians would love it but then it just kept like black families would come asian families south Asian southeast asian families would even white families would be like that's like my dad mm-hmm. you know this is like a romanian family or a yeah. jewish family and they'd be like
2: that's just like my mom and i had that exact conversation with her but you know in a different
4: language yeah.
2: And I wonder whether also the religious aspect, Um, you know, you, you explained how your dad was a pastor Mm -hmm. and many, many, many immigrant families, whether they're from Latin America or from Islamic countries or wherever they come from, uh, the parents and the grandparents tend to be very religious and maybe they hang on to that in a new, you know, in in a new land and their kids may not be so much but this series and this play is very much
9: anchored in the church Mm -hmm. does does that strike you i think it rings true Mm. um, especially in korean community back home where i come from in california there's a very strong presence of like immigrants having faith Mm -hmm. and i sort of grew up in the church as well and you know when i was living in korea as well like We had the same, you know, singing contests and fundraisers (laughs) and concerts during Christmas with like, you know, everyone's bringing out their violins and someone is on piano. And it's just like, Mm -hmm. that was part of our life. And I think that's why when I read it, it was like, ah, okay, that's true. That's true. So for me, it was very like. Immediate and automatic that something that I can connect to right away because that was sort of my childhood I was hanging around you know doing things around church all the time as a child and then into teenager years and then and then I went to college and then You know things changed. <laughs> but Yeah, so
4: but I think a lot of communities uh, immigrant communities like church or synagogue or temple mm. is it's kind of the the community center yeah. like I know in, in Toronto at least Uh, like, the Korean church for the Korean community, that was where the best food was for a long time. That was where you learned Korean language, taekwondo, like, and so it was, it's, like, I'd go to church on Sunday, and then I'd have Sunday school, but then I'd have, like, Korean school, Mm -hmm. and then there'd be, like, something in the afternoon, and then soccer teams, and then, you know, etc. So, it became, like, yeah, it became the center of the community and the kind of vehicle through which culture and heritage was passed down. Mm. Mm. Um, now it's, in Toronto not so much the church, because there's, you know, it's been, there's big Korean towns, Koreatown yeah. North and Koreatown South, and yeah, cultural centers that kind of
2: take that spot. You play four characters, we said. How yeah. difficult is that in rapid succession? It's not like it's, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an hour and 15 minutes, 15 minutes, yeah. this play. Yeah and you're just constantly rolling through it in different characters.
1: Yeah, it, the quick changes backstage. I mean, people say, oh, "Do do get nervous when you go on stage, but I'm more nervous backstage, making sure that I've got all my props. Have I mixed costume. up one? Yeah, i mixed up one shoe with the other, I'll make sure I've got the right money in the pocket to pay for certain items right. because you have to get the correct change and yeah. stuff like that. But um, yeah, we have got a lot of support And the backstage.
2: accents are all different? Accents,
1: yeah, slight yeah. variations in tone as well, yeah. um, just because of jobs and, you know, yeah echo social, you know, not cool stuff, so yeah.
2: You know, um, in this this play, Mm. Mr. Kim says, the store, my story, right? Mm. So he identifies the store with himself, and because neither of his kids, the way you've written them, want to become store owners, want to take over from him, Mm -hmm. he's kind of worried about what's gonna happen to him, what's his legacy, what does he have to show in the world? I don't know whether it's a spoiler alert or what, but, does the, sun, t- <laughs> Does the well, sun come back and take over? <laughs> it is,
4: I think it is a question for many immigrant parents who, who take up and do well. They, do, they come to another country and they do well, they, and then they, they want better for their kids. Yeah. But in this family, the kids don't live up to the expectations of their parents, and so it's, okay, what... But they're good
2: kids. They're good
4: kids but career-wise, yeah. They, yeah, they're a photographer and mm-hmm. they work at a car rental shop, which is fine, but they're not a doctor or a lawyer or, um, so the question of, you know, Apa's legacy and um, what does he, what does this all mean? Kind of an existential question he's left with and he's trying to answer throughout the play.
2: Um, actors, what do you think of the playwright as actor? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> That's a good question. Does he measure up? Does
9: he need to go back to acting school?
1: <laughs>
2: ah! <laughs> You're not going to get fired. I,
9: I, I think he is an incredible actor just as mm-hmm. much as he is of a writer. Yeah. Um, the moments that I get to be on stage with these particular people like It's incredible, but also I learned so much from working opposite ends, because a lot of the play, we're together (laughs) on stage. And I was very confident in myself because I was confident in them, because they were confident. And it's just, I learned so much. So I'm really, I'm really, I think he's incredible. Yeah. We also,
1: <laughs> we're, we're, we've also got a lot of space as well just to put our own stamp on these characters because these mm, plays right. existed long before yep. we have as well. So true. But I've never felt that like I have to fit into a certain, you know, mold of a previous production or mm. a previous actor. So I've just really enjoyed the space of putting my own stamp on these characters, which has been really fun.
2: So what is it like for you being the writer, the creator, the actor and, and multiple generation actor? I studied acting. Okay. I never studied writing. Okay.
4: Writing was always like a hobby, like a secret that I just did on the side. Didn't want to share with anyone because uh, it's too vulnerable to share your writing. Uh, but acting, I, so I have more, I don't know, confidence in acting yeah. than in my writing. I mean, now I'm more a bit more confident in my writing, but it's been just a, a kind of like a full circle uh, experience here. Mm. Uh, I mean, ever since I wrote wrote the play, I had two kids. Um, and I got old and I, I always wanted my kids to call me Appa. That's great. So as soon as they were born <laughs> <laughs> Now they call me Appa and now I play Appa.
2: Well, thank you very much indeed. You're very you very welcome. Thank you, thank you. It really is charming, and it's really a riot. Turning now to a feat of skill and bravery in the name of science, you may recognize climber Alex Honhold from the Oscar-winning documentary Free Solo, when he became the first person to scale El Capitan in Yosemite National Park without any ropes. Now... In a new National Geographic series, Arctic Ascent, he sets his sights even higher on a 4,000-foot sea cliff in Greenland. This time, he's got ropes, but he's also got the climate on his mind, and he's joined by a team of scientists headed up by glaciologist Heidi Sylvester. Hari Srinivasan speaks to them both about what they discovered.
10: Expedition leader Alex Honnold and glaciologist Heidi Sylvester, thank you both for joining us. Alex, uh, let me start with you. Uh, Our viewers might remember you stopped by our studios a few years ago when you were out talking about Free Solo, a movie uh, that cataloged an excruciating and anxiety-inducing detail, your ascent of El Capitan, one of the most famous rock faces in the United States. This is a film that does catalog you taking on an ascent in Greenland, but it seems like there was more to it that interested you than just the rock climbing.
5: Why did you do this? So this expedition was much broader in scope and in purpose. Uh, we were in a remote part of Eastern Greenland. We were there doing science with Heidi, uh, who was running a, many different projects along our journey. And mostly we were just exploring this incredible landscape and sort of telling a story about why Greenland and why the Arctic is so important for humanity. The first picture I saw of Ingma Cortelac, it looks like the scariest wall I've ever seen. We have no idea what the rock will be like, so we've asked two of the best climbers in the world to join me. And we have the right team in place to do meaningful research as we go climbing.
11: No one has been here for almost two decades. Because it's really one of the most dangerous environments
9: on earth.
10: Heidi, tell, tell our audience what is the consequence of the melting that is happening in the Arctic and in Greenland?
11: Yeah, thank you. The Arctic is warming three to four times faster than the rest of the world and we're seeing the impacts of climate change day in day out in that region. When you think of the Arctic, you have to understand that there is this giant island of Greenland that is mostly covered by ice. If this ice were to melt away, it would increase sea levels globally by up to 24 feet. So our future is directly connected to the health of the Arctic and to the health of the green and ice sheet.
10: Um, Alex, you have been interested in environment and uh, kind of protecting it and thinking about climate change for quite some time now. When you started out uh, on this trek, even just to get to the face that you were going to climb what
5: did you notice well to be honest for me as, as a as a layperson as a non-scientist I just noticed incredible glaciers incredible mountains incredible scenery and that's part of the the wonder of Greenland is that it is almost like a fantasy landscape it's just incredible I mean everything the scale is so vast and and so I think from a from a lay perspective it's just amazing it's beautiful and I think that's a big part of what you see in the show is just the incredible beauty of the landscape. But then I think that it's through the the science that Heidi is doing that you can kind of see how quickly that landscape is changing. You know, for me it's my first time going to a place like that, and so it just looks amazing. But the more you know about it and the more you understand it, the the more concerning it can be. When it comes to climate change, Greenland's one of the most important places on the planet. It's gotten about five and a half degrees warmer over the last 40 years. More and more of its ice is melting, raising the sea level around the world. Amy is extremely remote, and scientists rarely have an opportunity to study the area around it.
10: Heidi, most of the places that this expedition went to are places that humans don't get a chance to walk, much less take scientific uh, observations of. So give us an uh, idea of the range of measurements that you were taking on really the approach to where Alex and his team were gonna climb.
11: And joining this expedition was really a dream come true for a scientist because this is one of the least explored, least studied parts of Greenland. We were in East Greenland, this fjord of legends called Scoresby Sund. And for six weeks, actually, we traversed a big part of this fjord, crossing glaciers, ice caps, uh, collecting measurements in the very deep fjord, installing instruments on these massive cliffs. And in total, we worked with 12 different researchers research institutes on this expedition, including NASA, and we performed 18 different research protocols from going into glaciers, collecting rock cores, measuring ice thickness and, and water temperature. This was key for the research community and I'm really glad to see how much data we were able to bring back and share with these different research institutions.
10: Heidi, I know it takes a while for scientists to pore over that data and come to some conclusions. But are there examples of things that you have found during this expedition that are already kind of advancing what we understand about glaciers or about permafrost that's happening there?
11: Yeah, absolutely, science takes time, and it will probably take another couple of years to get all the results from this expedition. But we already have some preliminary results, especially uh, regarding the instruments that we launched for NASA in the water in the fjord. So, this instrument is called a float, and we launched it for a project called uh, Oceans Melting Greenland. And the float was basically going up and down the water column, measuring water temperature and water salinity. And what this robot was able to tell us is that the fjord is definitely getting warmer. This is not good news because if the water around the periphery of the ice sheet is warming up, it means that they can eat away at the ice around the ice sheet and really catalyze um, calving and catalyze sea level rise around the world.
10: Alex, uh, let's start talking a little bit about this climb. I mean, when you showed the scale of, say, the Empire State Building, El Cap, which is already enormous, which you uh, ascended uh, without any ropes, this rock, this sea cliff is a monster. It's even bigger. When you came up to it on the boat and kind of saw it for the first
5: time, what what went through your mind? Oh, sure. Heidi and I both smiled because we both remember seeing it from the boat for the first time and we all thought, oh no, it looked too big and it looked too daunting and it looked, uh, it looked very challenging, but, um, but, you know, then, then we set to work and started, started, you know, chipping away at it, so to speak, like started climbing and and making some progress and and ultimately we were able to climb it, but it it is a very intimidating wall. It's very big and it, uh, and it looks, it looks almost evil just the way the swirls on the rock are like, it, it looks very daunting. To climb in Cordillac.
3: Rock, 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 rock!
5: It'll be the biggest first ascent we've ever done.
9: We just don't know what we'll face up there. Oh
5: my god, it's so scary! Oh. <laughs> I was definitely hoping that like, conditions were going to improve, and they have definitely not improved. You
10: know, Heidi, one of the things that we noticed was the amount of ice falling on the climbers, which was an incredibly significant threat and a danger. And there was one point where Alex even gets cut on his nose by a piece of falling ice. But I wonder, you know, aside from Greenland, are we seeing these kind of climate, climate change impacts in other rock faces, other mountains around the planet as the temperatures warm up?
11: Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure Alex has lots of stories to tell about how climate change is impacting the safety of these mountains. But you know, I come from the French Alps and in the French Alps, we're starting to see more and more rockfalls. They're more frequent, they're bigger and bigger every year because we have what we call permafrost in these high mountains. And permafrost is like a glue uh, that keeps these mountains together. Unfortunately, it is thawing deeper and deeper every year. And so these mountains are becoming increasingly dangerous.
10: Alex, what are some examples that you have seen of how climate change might be affecting rock faces that you might have climbed earlier in your life and how situations have changed in
5: the places that you go to? Yeah, I mean... I mean, Heidi has just as many examples Like we both have seen so much of this in the natural world. But I mean, as a climber, you probably notice it the most with the approaches in and out of the mountains. So the way you hike into the mountains and the way you navigate glaciers, Um, just in the few seasons that I've climbed in Patagonia in southern Argentina, um i've seen some of the glaciers recede far enough that now you hike into the mountains on a whole different side of the valley like you used to hike on the south and now you hike on the north because the glacier has moved so much and now there's this giant lake that you can't really get around since you don't have a boat and so uh so things like that you know landscapes that look like they should be permanent uh are in fact changing incredibly quickly and that's pretty sobering because normally when you go into mountains like that you're struck by the sort of human insignificance. You know, you think how small you are and how big and permanent those mountains are. And in this case, you go there two years in a row and you see that the mountains have actually changed even more than we have, you know, and that's, that's a very scary thing to see.
10: Uh, how do you put that in perspective for us? When, you, when we look at core samples and you do your drilling and you, and, you, and you find almost a, you know, a history book of what's been happening to a specific piece of land, how conclusive is the human impact, whether it's ice core or rock core, and, and put in perspective that change, because these things have been literally here forever compared to us and our impacts.
11: Yeah, Absolutely, these landscapes have so many stories to tell whether it's the rock the ice we can really go super far back in time by analyzing these different materials and you know that climate has always changed absolutely but the rate of change we're seeing at the moment is absolutely unprecedented and it is without a shadow of a doubt, that the current change in climate we're all experiencing is directly connected to the burning of fossil fuels, to deforestation, basically to human activities. And it is really what scares us, the scientists, how quickly things are changing because it's really pushing our capacities of adaptation to their very limits. So this is why we need more data from these places to be able to prepare for a future that we're trying to see in these rocks in, in
10: this ice. Heidi, there's a, uh, a scene in the film where you basically just dig a hole and Alex sticks another one near you and both of you get into this hole and you kind of look in between and you see the different layers. This is just almost in a year it's worth and there are these lines. Explain what these lines across were and why that's significant.
11: Oh, that was so magical and I'm glad that I had these super fit uh, athletes around me helping me to dig these holes in the snow. And Alex was way faster than me. Uh, but it is really important, actually, to dig these snow pits because the deeper you go, the further back in time you can you can be. And what we saw was a series of ice lenses and as beautiful as they are, they're not a good sign. These ice lenses tell us that there were moments during the past few months on this ice cap that is at the periphery of the Greenland ice sheet, moments with melt, with rain. And this was highly unexpected actually for this part of Greenland that is supposed to be quite cold at this high altitude.
10: Alex, let's talk a little bit about um, how you kind of felt on this climb, because while doing a free solo is a totally different challenge uh, and it was sort of one part of your life, here you are years later taking on a six-week expedition with, as lots of things have, a very significant amount of risk involved. And I wonder if you approach the preparation differently, if
5: you think about things differently now that you're married and a dad. No, I mean, honestly, this was one of my favorite expeditions that I've ever been on. And I go on climbing trips every year. I mean, I'm frequently doing expeditions similar to this, but just, uh, you know, in, with different objectives. And this was one of my, my favorite trips just because it had the right combination of a great team, a great purpose, great objectives. You know, the climbing was inspiring enough for me to be excited to go there. But then the science that we were doing, the team that we were doing it with, everything else about the trip also just made the whole thing seem totally worthwhile to me in a, in a way that kind of put it beyond a normal climbing objective. Cause normally you're just climbing for yourself, but in this case, you know, it felt like we were really doing something useful and it made the whole trip feel a lot more meaningful. Alex, I also wonder,
10: there's a, a team member of yours, Mike, and you kind of have a, a disagreement and you have a heart to heart and the cameras are just well enough positioned to capture some of that. What went through your mind when you look back at that? Because his concern was, you know, I don't feel necessarily comfortable, and I kind of don't feel heard. And again, from a viewer's perspective, you're like, I, I wonder if they're at
5: they're misaligned here. No, so honestly, I think the the filmmakers did a great job showing the entire expedition. But the reality is that we had conversations like that much more than you see on camera. I mean, we were constantly talking about risk. We're constantly talking about how to mitigate risk and manage and like whether or not we feel comfortable, whether or not we feel safe. So you certainly see glimpses of it in the film, but the reality is we were talking about it all the time because we all want to come home safely. But one of the things that isn't shown in the film is that, you know, after that conversation, Mikey decided that he didn't want to participate in the climb on the face, but instead what he did was guide the camera crew up the backside of the mountain so that they could film it because he is basically a professional mountain guide and a filmmaker himself. And so part of what isn't said in that whole exchange is that he was deciding to use his unique set of skills in a different way to help the team in a way that he felt was safer, but still incredibly useful. Heidi, what's it like,
10: really beginning your climbing uh, experience with world-class experts on, a, you know, in a region that nobody's ever really climbed before.
11: I'll be honest, I really didn't want to do any climbing on this expedition, at least as little as possible. But you know, this was a one in a lifetime opportunity. And also, you know, I felt the, the pressure of the importance of collecting these rock samples on this wall the right way. Not that the climbers were not gonna do it the right way, but I really wanted to be there to see it happening. And luckily, you know, they trusted me. They thought that by giving me the right training, I would be able to do it. And it was, it was equally magical and terrifying at the same time, but I'm so glad that we we're able to collect these rock cores along the way. You know, this was a, a big mission complete for me
5: so uh, and Alex, how was she? oh she she was great Heidi, Heidi did fine. I mean, none of us had any doubt that she would she would make it up the wall just fine and, and be totally safe, but as she was just alluding to the science uh, I found that consistently throughout the expedition it was harder to do. The scientific experience, it was harder to collect data than I maybe expected because a lot of the things, uh, a lot of the protocols are just like, oh, drill a sample into the rock. But then it turns out it's really hard and it's hard to line up the drill properly. It's hard to manage the batteries. It's like everything was more challenging than we expected. And so I think it was actually incredibly helpful to have Heidi overseeing everything. Like there's no chance that we could have done any of the science without Heidi on the team because it just it turned out that it was all too difficult for us. Is there, Alex, um, a
10: moment that gave you pause on this, in the middle of this face,
5: um, where you're kind of making some of the final ascents? A little bit. I mean, I think our, our final day climbing Lake, which is kind of the the highlight of the the show, um, Hazel and I are climbing the final headwall of the this giant mountain. Uh, there was definitely a lot of uncertainty around how we could do it. Like physically where we should navigate on the wall and what route we should choose because i mean really that's the challenge of doing a first ascent because nobody's been there so you don't really know which way to go and we definitely both felt very uncomfortable the whole time you know like there was a lot of tension around how to how to weave our way up the wall but um there was no seriously dramatic moment but it was more like attention that you carry the entire day as you slowly work your way up. And we both felt incredible relief when we made it to the top. We were we were genuinely very excited to make it to the top. And Heidi, when did you figure out or hear that
10: they'd actually pulled it off?
11: Yeah, we had the radios from Basecamp and we heard the good news and yeah, the relief was also enormous at Basecamp. We were so anxious. We were really tense the whole time and we felt, You know, we felt so proud actually of what you guys had achieved. So again, yeah, massive congratulations.
10: Glaciologist, Dr. Heidi Silvestre and climber and expedition leader, Alex Honnold. Thank you both. Thank you. My pleasure.
2: And finally tonight, more ice and a happy ending in those icy waters on the other side of the world. Earlier this week, these orcas were seen trapped by sea ice off the coast of Japan's northern island, Hokkaido. First spotted by local fishermen, the pod of at least 10 was filmed struggling close together, poking their heads out of a hole in the ice. But local authorities believe they have managed to escape to safety now. An official said they could no longer spot the whales and that the ice drift had loosened, meaning chances were high that the orcas have broken free. That is good news, hopefully. And that is it for now. Thank you for watching and goodbye from London.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, sleep number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. JD Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store.